especially in Tokyo, because you're so surrounded with people from other nationalities, you exchange with each other and you're like, oh, why is this not working? Why is that not working? And these people are normally the ones that are quite unhappy and are likely to leave after a certain amount of time because they do not integrate and they do not accept the way things are done. I do believe there is change happening, but this change is not happening in a year or two. This is maybe happening in 10 years or 20 years. So if you're not here for the long run, if you're not here and understand that you just have to learn how to work with it, then you're not going to have a good time or you're not going to be successful. Konnichiwa, minasan. Business Success Japan no podcast e yokoso. Hello everyone and welcome to the Business Success Japan podcast. This is your host, Lydia Winkleman. This podcast is for individuals who want to develop and strengthen the communication skills and mindsets that are essential in a Japanese business environment. The helpful practical suggestions and engaging insights offered here provide listeners with the in-depth cultural context needed to achieve their own version of success while collaborating with Japanese counterparts. In today's episode, I get to share a conversation with Cindy Bissick of Obsessed with Japan and the new YouTube channel, Let's Travel and Eat. Cindy is an experienced content creator who has more than 15 years of experience in hospitality. The focus of her work lies in travel, events, as well as food and beverage, and she is also a professional sake sommelier. Today, she will share some of her experiences as a digital nomad in Japan, so be sure to stick around to learn more. But before we get into the interview, let's go over a little bit of Japanese. In the previous episode, we learned the Japanese word hanko. 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 On a basic level, a hanko is a stamp that Japanese people use as a personal seal in place of a signature. To hear a little bit more about it and how the culture around it may be changing due to COVID, be sure to listen to the previous episode with Will Jasprisa. Today, I want to teach you a phrase that could be especially useful when you want to compliment someone. Mega takai. Me ga ta kai. Mega takai. If you're at all familiar with kanji, be sure to check out the description of the episode to see them in this phrase. Me is the Japanese word for I, while takai is an adjective meaning tall, high, or often even expensive, depending on the context. Ga marks the preceding word as the subject of the sentence. So literally this phrase could roughly mean the I is high, though that really isn't a compliment in itself. The easiest equivalent to keep in mind is you have good taste. Like many phrases in Japanese, the fact that it's your I is implied based on the context. So if you would like to use this phrase, one possible way is as follows. Omega takai desu ne. Omega takai desu ne. Omega takai desu ne. The O placed in front is a form of keigo that is sometimes used in formal Japanese. Des is also added to the end of a sentence to make it more polite. And ne is extremely common in conversational Japanese, and I should probably just cover it on its own in a future episode. So be sure to try out this phrase the next time you want to tell someone that they have good taste or a discerning eye. I do have a quick note about today's interview. We had a little bit of connectivity issues during the recording, so I decided to use Cindy's copy. Because of that, my audio quality isn't very great. 
but I think that the listening experience is much better as it is. So I apologize for <laughs> my own audio quality, but I hope that you can still enjoy the interview. My name is Cindy. I'm originally from Switzerland. I spent half my time abroad, um, a very good chunk of it in Ireland, and I do live and work now in Japan. So what is your history with Japan then? Well, to be honest, I'm, I've been pretty obsessed with Japan since I was a child. Um, I've been trying to figure out what exactly happened. And I do think there was a time where we had a delegation of Japanese teachers come to my school when I was about six or seven years old. And aside from looking at how we're doing things, they also thought it was a good idea to teach the children a little bit of Japanese culture. And I learned how to eat with chopsticks and I learned how to do simple origami crane, which I then continued to do for a couple of months, driving my mother pretty mad. And I think it just stuck with me. And after that, I just kept getting these impulses from Japan, whether it was the anime, whether it was kimono or architecture, it just kept coming back. So I've just been continuously fascinated and wanting to come here. It's a common trend. I definitely see where <laughs> It, they just keep coming back to it until finally it's like, okay, I guess I'll go. <laughs> I guess I have to. Right. And I, I, to be so, honest, in my case, I tried to come here for 20 years and things just kept interrupting. You know, there was a job offer or there was another opportunity and I didn't make it. Um, so when I actually made it, I it was a bit like bummer. I should have come earlier. But yeah, it, it was all the more reason to do it. And which kind of also started me to actually think about, wow, how could I build a future here? Like, how could I do things differently than I did in Europe? Can you tell us a little bit about what you are doing right now in Japan? Yes. Well, with the pandemic, I must say things have obviously changed and we're all adapting to what's happening at the moment. So I am running my own business. It's called Obsessed with Japan because that's kind of the name of the game. Um, what I do is my business kind of acts like a bridge company between Japan and the foreign community. It was always meant to be introducing Japan, showcasing it, showing you what else could there be in both tours, events, but also media. Although as a start, the tours and the event side of it was a lot bigger, which now obviously translated to a more behind the scenes media focus. So what is the sort of thing that you are currently doing? Because obviously the events mm. have kind of... <laughs> inherently gone away because of the pandemic. So how have things shifted for you? Yeah, I adapted a lot because I was already working as a writer for other publications, but then I've just done a lot more of consulting on certain topics because I do a lot with sake and a lot of my tours and events were in relation to the sake industry and introducing sake to foreigners. I've just really moved behind the scene as a consultant. I do a lot of media, I'm getting into more photography and editing. So I think this site is now taking over and I'm not unhappy about it, to be honest. No, I'd love to hear more about that. But what does it look like to introduce foreigners to sake? What's kind of been your experience with that? To be honest, I think a lot of people are a bit scared of sake. Um, and I think there's really two reasons for it. One, we might have had a, a bottle of sake or we tried it in a, in a Japanese restaurant in our countries. And we weren't quite, how do you say it? I mean, you're, you're just not that into it because you might just gotten a sake that is not premium or that is not curated perfectly to go with the food. And you, you just think, oh, maybe that's not my favorite drink. And 
that's basically the end of sake for you, right? If you had that experience. The other thing is, I think a lot of people has that misconception of sake being a spirit. It stems from the fact that if you look at the bottle of sake, the percentage written on it is actually not the alcohol percentage, it is the milling rate. So you might see 50% on a bottle of sake in between all the Japanese language and the kanjis. And that's the only thing you can read. And you think like, oh my God, that's 50% alcohol. I'm not drinking spirits so, and you're never going to touch it again. So I think that's two reasons why people shy away a little bit from it. At the same time, once you come to Japan, I think it is the perfect bridge to bring people into the culture because we all like to socialize and we all like to try new things. So introducing sake and the culture around it is normally what really gets people going and interested. So then talking a little bit more about your history in the hospitality industry, can you share with us a little bit about what makes that industry unique in Japan? Of course, Japan, we, we have these pictures of people in kimono, right? And we're going to the hotel and everybody's bowing and everybody's friendly. And I totally agree with that side of it. I think there's just a lot more. And I guess if you become a business owner and you have to go and work with the other side of things, it can be quite a challenge. In Japan, there is a thing um, and you might know this, called dekimasen, which pretty much means cannot do. So something that is impossible, basically. If you come to Japan, you actually will see this dekimasen culture quite a bit. They're very used to work with manuals. So if it's not in the manuals, you cannot do it. Where we as Westerners, we might say, yeah, of course I can put a different sauce on, on your pasta. But in Japan, often it's something that they just cannot do. And I think that's quite a unique aspect and yeah, something you will definitely encounter if you're for a bit longer in the country. So just based on your own experience, is that pretty universal throughout Japan in different areas or does it vary? No, it's extremely universal. It's also something that a lot of people who've been here for a long time sometimes find very hard to cope with because we are so used to think for ourselves. I mean, in, in the West, we're supposed to think for ourselves, right? It's about you can decide this, like why you're coming to me with every single question. So you don't want to micromanage, whereas in Japan, everything is micromanaged. So you're not supposed to think, you're supposed to just follow the rules. So if the rules doesn't give you the answer, then it's just not happening. Right. And then also touching on the idea of kind of expertise, maybe. So a little store that specializes in a certain type of food the reason you go to that restaurant is because they know what they're doing. So mm. if you come in and say, oh, no, change all these things for me, it might almost be <laughs> a little bit of, of an offense. Exactly. And I think some people don't realize, I mean, the fact that Japan is what it is right now, that we have all this rich culture, that the tea ceremony is still intact and it's passed down over the centuries, is because they're not changing it. Nobody said, oh, let's, let's change the way we're doing this. No, it's like, no, this is how you do it and this is the right way to do it. And that's the the double side of the coin, right? I mean, there's, this is why we love it, but this is also sometimes a huge reason for us to be a bit frustrated about how things work. So then having started your own small business in Japan, could you tell us a little bit about your experience with the business manager visa specifically? We've talked a little bit about the startup visa and they're kind of related, but 
Can you tell us about the business manager visa specifically? Yeah, so there's a, there's a few different visas and the business manager one is one that is a little bit more difficult to get. There's a lot of strings attached. You have to come up basically with a business, uh, business with a solid business plan. You have to have a certain investment that you're going to put into the company and you have to prove that you obviously have this. You have to have things like an office. So you might think, oh yeah, I have a small startup. I go to a co-working space which would be totally okay anywhere else. But in Japan and in order to attain this visa, you need to have a physical space. So it has to have four walls and a door and a name tag. So they're very, very specific attached to attain this, which just makes it quite lengthy. I think another problem with it is the evaluation process, which is not as transparent as you might think it would be because the people basically making that decisions are immigration officers. They're not really business consultants. They're not people who evaluate business ideas. Like these are just people who decide whether you're gonna get a visa or not. So to convince them or to make it very obvious to them that you have a great idea that should be done and you need that visa to be in the country can be a little bit tricky. And the only way or the best way to do it is really hiring people that can help you with it. So. What were some of the specific hurdles, if you have any that come to mind, that you maybe faced that were mm. unexpected while you were going through the visa process? I'm trying to think. It's been a while and I'm trying to forget about it as well because it was so stressful at the time. I think the interesting part is you can do it by yourself. So you might be tempted to say, yeah, this is just documents and I fill them in. As you print out your 50 pages of documents that you have to have, it's again, it's the it's a culture of people not necessarily thinking they're just doing what they're being told. I remember having a document that said my bank received this money because I had to deposit the investment fund into a bank account. And I kind of asked them, so where do I do this? Doc where do I get this document from? And they're like, you just make it yourself. And I'm thinking, well, how official is this if I just make it? myself right so it there's a lot of things like this where you're a bit thinking like wow this is very different and it doesn't make any sense to me so there's just so much possibility to do things wrong so i think a lot of people get scared at that point um also with all the kanji again with the language barrier i guess even if you're in an english-speaking country and english is your native language you might shy away from doing these legal documents by yourself but in japan this is just another massive problem to do things by yourself. So what sorts of things did you find you really were better off <laughs> finding Japanese people to do for you when it came to opening and running your business? To be honest, anything that I want to be done exactly right, I get Japanese staff to do it. But it's also because the culture is different. The way people handle certain things are different. The communication is different. There is a lot of little loopholes and they're obviously everywhere, but if you don't know them, um, you're pretty much lost. So you really want to have an expert on your side to help you navigate through these waters. I think the most important person for me at the moment is my accountant because, and I guess this is what I've heard from other business owners. With the business manager visa, to come a little bit back on this one, your visa is tied to your business numbers. So if I don't perform this year, they're going to judge my visa application on 
how I did. So I have to explain why I didn't make money or why did I not um, make enough money as I projected at the beginning of the year. So with that comes paying the taxes. So these are the really big points on getting your visa application and um, reevaluate and granted is have you paid your tax? Have you not made any mistakes within any of the businessy things within Japan? So anything that relates to these topics, I normally give away to someone who knows more. No, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Erring on the side of caution, especially with anything legal or mm. yeah, I guess that accounting could fall under legal issues as well, especially taxes. So then as a non-Japanese business owner, how were you able to source these Japanese contractors to do these sorts of jobs for you? Yeah, that's another big topic. I think we don't really have a network here. I think that's the, that's the first um, hurdle. Although I must say there is some really good services. There is like an entrepreneur business center in the bigger cities. You can approach them and they give free advice, which I thought was really helpful until a certain point. And then I guess it's really about networking. I went to a lot of networking events back when I was in Tokyo. There is Venture Cafe and a few other ones where you just meet people that are in the same situation. So you, I mean, I generally just went there to find the right people to work with and, and kind of sponge up as much information as I could before I actually plunge into that new adventure. So can you tell us a little bit more about how networking worked for you? Was it something that you went into very intentionally? It sounded like you kind of had the type of people in mind that you were looking for. But how did you go about networking strategically in Japan? And is it any different than it would have been in your home country? That's a really good question. Um, I think it's, it's very much the same. Actually, I think sometimes it might almost be a little bit easier because there's a very strong foreign community. There is these English speaking events, which you already know the right people will be there. On the other hand, I think once you made the first contact, a lot of things happen through introduction in Japan. Um, and that's really a cultural, I wouldn't say problem, but that's just how things work. So I recently been looking for a new lawyer and it's often not seen as the right way that you just contact someone like a call contact. You normally have someone that introduces you to the next person. So everything happens a little bit slower. And I think it's a process that we are not very used to in the West. I guess if you were speaking to somebody who is coming fresh into Japan without any sort of network, do you have any specific advice that you would give them for how to start out? Yeah, the network really is kind of everything. But there is a lot of research you can do before you come here. There is obviously also Chetro who does consultations. Again, there is the, the business centers for entrepreneurs and they're both for foreigners and Japanese people. And I think these are really good starts to kind of get the ball rolling because you just need that one or two people that can just point you into the right direction. It also really depends on what kind of business you're going to start. You, you might just want to come here and, and kind of get a feel for the landscape or go to places and research a little bit. And then these contacts will come naturally. Speaking of starting your own business, what motivated you to 
work on starting your own business instead of plugging into existing media companies or existing event companies in Japan. Yeah, there were several reasons for me with that. I think I worked for a long time in other companies and also startups. And I got to a point where I really wanted to make more decisions. I often felt I do things differently. And I think that was already lingering somewhere in the back of my head. Then as I started coming to Japan, I also realized that a lot of the things I was looking for, they weren't here. And although there's a lot of tourism, and this is quite unexpectedly, there is still a big divide between what's available and accessible for non-Japanese speakers. And if you're outside of Tokyo, you're going to struggle with quite a few different things because you won't have the translations and you won't have people speaking English. And I really saw an opportunity there. I also, and mind me, this is before last year, I was timing it with the Olympic Games and I knew it would go, it would work. Um, we all knew there was going to be a big influx on tourists. There would be actually more people than we could ever help. So it just felt like the right moment in time and the right thing to do. But yeah, then obviously we know what happened last year, then everything changed. And now I'm still very confident, to be honest. I, I never gave up the idea and I still think there is a huge market for introducing Japan the way I'd like to introduce it or the way I felt I couldn't find it back then. Yeah, could you tell me a little bit more about that sort of gap that you saw between how you wish mm. that you had been introduced to Japan and kind of what's currently mainstream available to people coming to Japan? I think tourism as it is in Japan was very much one-sided. I think, and that also comes with the Japan, with the Japanese ideas of what tourism is based on their inbound tourism, right? how Japanese people travel. And I think it's a lot of things were like, oh, that's how we like to travel. So that's what that's a product that we're going to create. I used to backpack and I used to just go here and there and be quite spontaneous. And I think that aspect of traveling Japan has still been quite undiscovered, which also explains why Tokyo would be quite easily to navigate. Whereas you go to Hokkaido, suddenly you can't even read the signs because this is not where they expect you to go as a tourist if you come from abroad. So I think this was certainly one thing that I thought could be improved, could help. I could help more local communities to attract foreign visitors and but also do this respectfully. The other thing, and that was one of my big motivators, was local events and the arts. I always like to go to local events. I always like to go to small galleries. I like to find the unusual. Um, again, that's not something that would have been translated into English. That's not something they feel like this is where the tourists will go to. So I wanted to open up that creative platform where people go like, wow, there is something really interesting happening over here. And I just wanted people to be able to find it and discover it without having to sift through pages of pages and use Google Translator and not having a network that's local in Japan. So I think these were kind of the two main drivers for me to, to go it alone. I can see how that would be a very important niche to address. So is there anything else you can say about what you do to make those sorts of niche or off the beaten path events more accessible to foreigners? 
Well, to be honest, as, as we know, at recently there hasn't been that many events. But when I started, I, I had a few events that I really loved. And I was even scared to go there because I, my Japanese wasn't that great. And you're looking around and you don't know what this is, what they're selling and how do you eat this or what's even happening. So what I kind of started with on, on one hand was bringing people to these events that I loved. I always knew that I'm not Japanese. I haven't lived there for 25 years, but that's not what I felt was needed at that point. I think what I thought I could bring to the table is bringing someone to a place and give them that safety blanket of explaining to them what is happening, letting them try things that they normally wouldn't try by themselves and then just interact and, and kind of spur their curiosity. So I think that's kind of where I started and actually was quite successful, especially in the more remote areas. Of course, holding on to the knowledge that it needs to be done in a respectful way, especially respectful for people, for locals in the community. Mm. But what are some things that, in your opinion, these more rural areas who have these special events can do to make them available to foreigners, to help foreigners know about them and share with them? Yeah, I think if I had all the answers, um, I would work with all the prefectures, right, and, and guide them through this process. I think there's there's a few hurdles for for these local communities, and I think one is already the logistics of it. If you have to take two trains and it takes you three hours to get there, it's it's going to be a real big challenge for any traveler because we have time constraints. If you're the first time in Japan and you have three days in Tokyo, you're not going to spend a single day to go out somewhere into the nowhere where you don't know what's going to happen. So I think making these places accessible, especially for the events, I, th I could imagine if, let's say, Gunma Prefecture, just outside Tokyo, would decide on an events calendar with all their local communities, put that together and then organize transportation to and from the event, even just with a small leaflet explaining what's happening and how you can interact that would already do a lot because it would take away the endless research you'd have to do by yourself you kind of show them exactly what's happening and you make it accessible i think it would be a huge step in the right direction no i love that idea that makes a lot of sense just making it simple for people to mm. see how it can fit into their trip because like you said people don't want to feel like they've wasted any amount of their vacation hmm. or traveling in Japan. So yeah, just making sure people know how they can fit it in <laughs> to their adventures in Japan would definitely go a long way. Totally. And I mean, to to go a bit deeper, I think it's also about the awareness of things. You know, I because I was in Gunma this year at the beginning of the year and I was shown around by some local business owners and they showed me amazing things, but nobody knew it was there. And I was a bit like, if I would know this is here, I actually might make the trip, even if it's difficult. But the pure fact that you don't think this is an important part that you could showcase, that's a whole different um, problem that I think, again, comes back to Japanese tourism is very different to having foreign visitors coming in. Are there any particular aspects of it that you could point to to show what those differences are or tend to be? I think it starts with the obvious. I guess these lo a lot of the local festivals, the smaller ones, they're 
exactly that their local festivals it's like for us you know you're like yeah this festival is happening it happens every year i'm i'm 40 years old this is really no big deal for me i see this all the time right um you don't really understand that this could be something that someone who travels all the way from america or europe would actually find interesting and i think this is really the mindset that i think they have to adapt a little bit because we find a lot of these local smaller things extremely interesting yeah i know that just from my own experience <laughs> those were the always the things that i was most excited to hear about not necessarily the museum the touristy museum that everybody's told to go to or any other photo op area it was always those small things that had the biggest impression on me is there anything else that you can share with us about your experience as an independent content creator in Japan i guess and that's what probably every independent whether they're content creator or independent freelancers or whatever will tell you it's great but it also has its downsides i think i particularly and it's again it's tight into with the pandemic i i kind of do the opposite that everybody else does and it's kind of starts with the lifestyle that i'm actually don't have a house and i'm traveling consistently but this gives me the freedom of going to the places that i want to create content for and i think for me this is really the most precious part of it because it's not all about the money although obviously i do need to make money but i really feel there is another responsibility or there is another how you, calling calling might be a bit too big of a word but again i want to introduce japan and i don't want to introduce just shibuya and tokyo so i feel the only way i can really do it to do it justice is by doing it independently what then does it look like to live and work as a digital nomad in japan so especially during the pandemic the idea of digital nomadism <clears throat> has blown up a little bit at least for my generation mm. so can you tell us a little bit about what that looks like in japan i think it's a rather new concept in japan i mean it's new obviously all over the world but i think in japan it's it's really a bit strange because again coming back to how they're doing things right they're they're supposed to micromanage they're looking at manuals and you can only really do this when you're in one spot together <laughs> so the idea of you not being in the office doing your work all by yourself and nobody knows what you're doing and nobody can correct every single step of what you're doing is very alien to them which also was a, a big influence on why it took so long for the japanese to adapt to the whole work from home even during the pandemic last year a lot of offices didn't you know they just couldn't figure out how to do it because it's such an alien concept for them so it is certainly something that raises an eyebrow when i mention it <laughs> to japanese people but most of them get really excited because they're just like how do you do this even for them as i mentioned to you before when we talked before the show i normally plan about two weeks ahead i'm quite flexible with my schedules i decided and again this is tied to the pandemic that i'm just going to see all the things i really want to see and that i'm really passionate about and i understand that at the moment i'm travel is not what it used to be or what it what we know it it's a light version of it i'm personally very cautious i don't go into closed restaurants i mean closed spaces i 
I only would sit on the terrace. I do takeaways. Some of the museums are closed. Some of the parks are even closed. Depends on where you go and where we are within the state of emergencies that keep coming and going um, over the last couple of months. So it's definitely a different experience, but I feel this experience of empty Japan is also uniquely interesting to me to see all these places without people and especially when they're traditional it's it's really magical to walk through a street and there's nobody else around you yeah and especially since as you said you're currently in Kyoto mm. that has to be a very unique opportunity to be in Kyoto when it's not overrun by foreign tourists yeah it totally is I think when I got here last year because I obviously I move around, but I, I keep coming back to Kyoto because I really like it. I think Kyoto is really what we imagine as Japan, because you have all the temples and then people wearing kimonos walk by you. And if you're lucky, you even see a geisha, even these days, you know. So being here has been really special. And especially for me walking around at nighttime, I found it very, very pleasing, um, both visually and then also I must say to some extent spiritually because you walk around and you really feel like this could have been 300 years ago i mean it's almost like time traveling because you don't have all the references of modern day life so yeah i i feel very lucky to be able to experience it are there any just logistical hurdles that you have to deal with as a digital nomad in japan do they have any issues dealing with thinking about your residency mm. or is that not so much of a challenge well, <laughs> I'm laughing because, yeah, it's it's more of a personal challenge than a real, a real problem, I guess. Because I don't really have an address. I'm, and don't tell anybody. I know this is not this is a podcast, but I'm still kind of using my old address, which I don't live anymore. Which is totally fine because. I also give my phone number. I also give my email address. So if anything happens, I'm totally contactable. Just I have to be a little bit on the blurry side when I answer my address question. But other than that, it's really not a big deal. It's more, yeah, for me to receive letters or, or certain things. If I can't send it to my office, which I actually, the majority of things do go to my office. It's just you can't use an office as a residential address. So this is a little bit of a, of a challenge sometimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so just those things where... You need to fill in the actual line on the form it can be a little bit of a challenge but exactly but to be honest i'm also in the process of changing that so to be continued to be continued great <laughs> so moving along do you have any examples from your time in japan of a communication breakdown that you think was due to differences in culture of course <laughs> um, of course there's i mean to be honest, I think there is this communication breakdowns anywhere you go. I mean, you're in Europe, you're in the States. I mean, there's always, yeah, I mean, it's not it's some, something very unique to Japan or to the, the cultural differences. But yeah, it's difficult sometimes, I think. And it's something that you also have to wear when you come here. Saying no is not really an option for many people and I think it has to do with the way the language is structured and the way things have established but people never really will say no to you 
they're they often give you a very floral colorful answer which is a no but they never say actually no so i think sometimes as a foreigner you're like what are you talking about that was not what i asked can you just say yes or no but they will never just say yes or no so even when i sometimes say after getting three of these explanations i'm like no <laughs> they will still not really say no to me because that's just not how they do it so it's really about reading between the lines and if they don't say yes it's quite likely a unspoken no okay so like you said if you ask for a no they don't give it to you but they also don't give you a yes that's probably still a no yes <laughs> <laughs> definitely a good a useful way to think about it so if you were speaking with someone who was going to japan for business specifically and they really only had time to learn one thing about the country or the culture ahead of time mm. what would you take the time to teach them it's not even about learning something in particular it's more a mindset that i think people should adapt if they can before they come here and it is all to do with expectations i think being aware of that this is a different culture like to really be aware what it is and that it's been here for a long time and that it's not really changed in a long time i think it's very crucial to be successful because if you don't accept it to some extent um, you want to be so frustrated that you're probably not going to stay if you look at how things are done in the business world in japan and they do want to give you that sense of we're global and we're open to foreign investors and please come and work here but if you go deeper you will see that underneath all of that the business culture is the same as it was 20 years ago 30 years ago 50 years ago it hasn't changed so um if you look past what is being said and you look at what is being done, yeah, just be prepared to to do it their way a lot of the time because you're not going to change it, you know? Flexibility is definitely key. <laughs> I can agree with that. Hmm, totally. I think I know a lot of people and I think there's a big expert community and especially in Tokyo because you're so surrounded with people from other nationalities. You you exchange with each other and you're like, oh, why is this not working? Why is that not working? And these people are normally the ones that are quite unhappy and are likely to leave after a certain amount of time because they do not integrate and they do not accept the way things are done. I do believe there is change happening, but this change is not happening in a year or two. This is maybe happening in 10 years or 20 years. So if you're not here to for the long run, if you're not here and understand that you just have to learn how to work with it, then you're not going to have a good time or you're not going to be successful. Yeah, I think the term is radical acceptance. So you don't have to say <laughs> that something's okay. You just have to be willing to accept it and move on with your life. Otherwise, you'll completely burn yourself out just trying to fight about every little thing. Exactly. Great. Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation, but is there anything that we really didn't get a chance to touch on during this conversation before we wrap up for today? We could always talk longer, right? I mean, there's a lot to say. This is Japan is a big country and there's a lot of topics. But I think I hope I was able to kind of share a little bit of my experience, kind of open a few of the doors and give some people a little bit uh, opportunity to think about a few aspects that they might not have thought about before. And sure, if 
there is any questions or more, there's always time to address that in another format. You're obviously on LinkedIn. You have your other platforms that you're posting content to, so people can definitely find you to learn more if they need to. And I'll put all of those links in the description of the episode as well, if anybody is curious. So thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. I mean, this was a fun morning. Um, there's plenty to do today. And yeah, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day evening. And I is really happy to be here and share a little bit about my life. that you enjoyed today's conversation and please be sure to check out the links in the description of this episode to learn more about Cindy Fisick, Obsessed with Japan, Let's Travel and Eat, and much, much more. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and share it with a friend, colleague, or connection on LinkedIn to help spread the perspectives and information shared in the podcast. And please remember to go ahead and subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're using and also leave a rating and review if you enjoyed the podcast. If you would like to support the podcast financially, please check out my link to the new coffee page to keep me well caffeinated and making content. As always, feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics. Also, be sure to reach out if you would like to contribute as a guest on the podcast to share your own cultural insights into doing business in Japan. I'd love to hear directly from you as well, so if you'd like to leave a voice message, you can find a link to do that in the description as well. But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. Until next time, mata kondo.